Track, Manny. Is this <laughs> How dare you, sir? <laughs> this is Lady Day. This is the fabulous, amazing Miss Billie Holiday. And I chose this today because she reminds me of champagne. What a coincidence. We're drinking champagne. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we, yes, we do. Yes, we are. Oh, you can't see it but I'm pouring some champagne today. Yes. So what, I, that, that's really interesting. Why, what about that song makes you think of champagne? I'm curious. That song reminds me specifically of what I'm drinking today, which is Tattinger. This is the Brut Francais, so you can say Tattinger. That's how most people are gonna understand it. Um, and to me, like Billie Holiday has such a, she's an amazing singer, such an incredible talent, but she has such a bright, um, bubble bounce to her and she's really playful and that reminds me of just champagne in general um i love listening to billy holiday and i love drinking sparkling wines and i like having them together so it's a, it's a good pairing that's awesome so i'm not going to forget this because like i forgot last week uh that was manny gonzalez the better half of bottom of the bottle if you couldn't tell by that eloquent introduction uh i am adam cataldo I am always just here to uh, just play off Manny. Uh, I'm not supposed to say nice things about him, but he didn't know I was going to do that. So I took the, so I, I took the <laughs> opportunity. Uh, I'm going to start calling you the professor. <laughs> I don't have the fedora on today. You can't do that. Um, thank you guys all so much for, you know, the, the seven of you out there who, who have been listening. We, we love you. It's awesome uh, for taking this kind of wild ride with us. Uh, you know, we did, we did Rosé last week. I, I can't stop with rosé so i'm drinking rosé champagne the only thing i like you know rosé and champagne are my two favorite things which is why i think manny's going to ask me for a big favor after this because we've done them back to back now um <laughs> the only thing i like more than rosé or champagne is rosé champagne so i'm i'm pumped for this week right now um yeah i just i i am i'm it's awesome uh but before we start, I got to give you um, some some love. The you did in about forty seconds what it took me six minutes to do in your uh, LVE video yesterday we had for for Instagram, where you explained the different processes by which sparkling wine is made. And I got to point out, you did such a good job that the LVE Instagram page liked your post. Now stick with me here. Because right. this, this, is, this is big news. Big news. LVE liked your post. LVE, Legend Vineyard Exclusive, it's, it's John Legend's wine. So tangentially, this means John Legend liked your post. John Legend is married to Chrissy Teigen, which means another degree of separation. Chrissy Teigen liked your post. I wasn't in your video, but I shared the Instagram page with you. So that means Chrissy Teigen also likes me, which means by proxy, we're best friends forever now. So um, I just, I thought I wanted to announce that to the world. You know, uh, I, it's the secret's out now. It's, Are you going to have them over for, for, for brunch or something like that on your back porch? Yeah, uh, they have not returned any of my, uh, my calls, my emails, my texts. What are you do? <laughs> we're working on it. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, it's all, it's all about the, with wines like that or with what we're drinking, I mean, it really is about the, the lifestyle. And I think that's one great thing about champagne is that we always think of this kind of the lifestyle of champagne, the celebration, the party, um, you know, the, uh, we, this is what people drink at midnight, you know, on, um, you know, on New Year's Eve, it's what they drink for celebrations. And, uh, you know, I thought it would be, we both thought it would be really great for us to, oh, there goes my paper, uh, really great for us to talk about, you know, uh, why that is. Why do we celebrate with champagne? Why do we look at these wines and, and with such awe, with such excitement? Um, I know Adam really, really digs champagne. We've gone over this many, many times. Um, don't give him a Peron, which is this weird looking Spanish uh, glass object to drink kava out of he's actually going to grab it if you're watching the video there it is yep 
um, because maybe at the end you should you should drink out of that. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> so you know, we, we want to talk champagne today. We want to talk about the lifestyle of it, why we love drinking it, why it's associated to luxury, and you know, I want the professor to give us some history on this because um, there is a deeper story in the celebration of champagne beyond our conception of, of it today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's the champagne's a lifestyle, uh, unlike maybe any other region in the world, champagne is a region, is a brand. Uh, it, it has, you know, every, everyone wants to have an identity, uh, but, but champagne has taken that to a new level as a region. And it, it's really cool. And, and that's a long story. And just really quick, um, so that we're, we're clear, the LVE video Manny did, that, that's a sparkling wine from France, but it's not champagne. To, you know, there's all these jokes I had in my video uh, it, it's, you know, it, you know, it's not, uh, it's not existentialism unless it comes from the existential region of France. Otherwise it's sparkling anxiety. Well, that, that, that joke comes from champagne. If it's not from the actual region of champagne, it has to be called something else. Champagne is a place, uh, and that place has a, a rich funky history, which I'm going to get into right now. Uh, cause I'm the history geek. I have to justify all that money I spent on my, uh, my degree that's, you know, up here on the wall. Um, so it's actually a really cool story. So if we go back, you know, a, a thousand years, um, France, you know, before they were France, you know, they were Gaul, right? So we, we've heard of all sorts of, you know, if you're familiar with, uh, you know, the Roman Empire, the, they were fighting Charles de Gaulle, and you have all these things going on. Uh, well, the the Frank tribe, the guy who eventually united France, his name was Clovis. And Clovis was a pagan. And the, it looked like he was gonna win. He was gonna conquer all, you know, what we now know as France. He was gonna win this, this big war. He was fighting and unite, you know, the, the, the country, so to speak, which wasn't really a country yet, but he was gonna do it. And uh, Bishop Remy uh, of Brahms, he was the Bishop of Brahms, which is a, a, a village in, in Champagne really wanted Clovis to convert to Christianity. And Clovis was like, yeah, I don't know. So he, you know, he, he's trying, trying, trying. Remy gets a meeting with him and says, look, uh, I, I, I need you to come, you know, I need you to come on, on, on the righteous path, like join me. And Clovis says to him, if your God, you know, guarantees me victory, I will convert. And Remy, and Remy has a, uh, basically says in response, um, if you come to God, he will guarantee your victory. And Clovis goes out and he wins and, you know, views it as a sign that, that God is on his side and, and converts to Christianity in Rams with, um, with Bishop Remy. And he's crowned the first king of France for all intents and purposes, you know, but by Remy in, in the cathedral in Rams. Uh, and, this is then a, a tradition that that continues. That Rams is where most of the the yeah, I don't think it's all of them, uh, but most of the French kings, the monarchy is that that's where you pass the torches in Rams from that moment. So that's when Champagne goes from it was always kind of important because of where it is on the map, but that's when it goes from just kind of being a, a trading post on the way to different places to this iconic area where the king of France is now crowned and it goes back to that moment it's really cool that's awesome um yeah, i think it was 20 27 kings were crowned there you know and, and you know it's which when your king is getting crowned uh it's not just dignitaries from the area or friends and family or you know whatever um and it's definitely the local french people that are going to this thing they would get dignitaries from Prussia, from, um, you know, what is now Spain or from England. They would all come to these, to these weddings. And imagine, you know, in, um, you know, being the king of Prussia and you're coming in, you don't really like the French king, but you're going to do your part. You're going to go in and see if we can hash things out and you get the local wine and you drink the local wine there and it's good. It's tasty. Um, you know, but, you're on your way home and all of a sudden, randomly, unbeknownst to them as to why, these bottles just started to 
explode. You know, now we were going to talk peace, but now I'm maimed. My wife is scarred. Uh, we're going to war. And I don't know if wars were actually fought because of that, but I'm sure there were probably a lot of a lot of fights. <laughs> you know, you know that that happened from that. Wine uh, does not. Uh, if anyone has spilled wine on themselves, especially red wine, it does not come out easy. So yeah, that 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 would be an issue. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's important to note now. So back. Going back to uh, when when Clovis becomes, you know, when Clovis becomes um, king, and in, in these Middle Ages and the Dark Ages and so on, um, Champagne wasn't sparkling, so or intentionally sparkling. Let's put it that way. So what many just described uh, the bottles exploding is what we now know affectionately as the ancestral method. And I explained this the other day. Uh, what would happen? in various places and it would absolutely happen in champagne because champagne's really cold which we'll get to shortly um fermentation would stop and we would just you know the winemaker would think that it's all done and they they bottle the wine and you know store it in their cellar and whatnot nothing would happen and then it would come out of that cellar in the spring when it was warming up because there was still sugar and yeast in that bottle fermentation would happen again and technology is not great you know, 700 years ago, 600 years ago. So the the glass wasn't made for, for sparkling wine. The, the, the enclosure wasn't made. So all this stuff happens and these these bubbles happened and they and it was viewed as a fault. It was actually viewed as a mistake. It was not, you know, we look at it now as bubbles are, are really important, right? They're like, oh my God, this is, the, where are these bubbles? This is awful. Um, especially when you have the bottle explode. <laughs> yeah, that was a... Uh... Um, definitely, I would say a challenge, a challenge to say the least. And, you know, and I think a lot of that had to do, well, first of all, there are a lot of myths about, about champagne and there are a lot of myths about individuals of champagne. And one of those is the famous monk Dom Perignon. It's not just brand or champagne, but was, um, an actual person. And a lot of people credit him for creating, uh, champagne. And there's a very famous quote that he never said, and it's, uh, I believe it's I'm tasting the stars. I'm drinking the I'm taste I'm drinking the stars. Um, it's romantic. It is poetic. It sounds lovely. It's, he never said it. Um, they were trying to stop Adam was saying that was viewed as a fault. They're trying to figure out how to make this from how to keep it from happening. Um, but what he realized was that where they were located, um, Pinot Noir didn't want to be a red wine. They didn't want to make red wine. They wanted to make white wine. And so he learned how to press in such a way that there was, you know, we talked about the direct press method a couple weeks ago with Rosé. Well, he took it one step further. The pressing is so gentle that there you get, there's um, almost every champagne has Pinot Noir in it. And if it, if it doesn't have, if it's only white grapes, it's probably real expensive champagne. Um, it's, it's one of the most, uh, well, first of all, there are three grapes in champagne that we should probably talk about. Um, you know, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay. Those are the three grapes in champagne. Uh, there are some old historic, uh, grapes that they grew a long time ago that are now extinct. Um, but that is the cornerstone of champagne. I think they can do Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, but it's a very small amount. Um, you know, but he, most of the champagnes on the market whether it's a white or rosé, are at least 50 to 60% red grapes. And that's what Dom Perignon figured out. It's, it's so interesting, you know, um, talking about how I said before, you know, champagne is a, as a region is a brand. You, you just hit on the note, uh, a quote that Dom Perignon didn't say but everyone, you know, everyone knows and can quote because that that that's the you know the the myth, the culture, the the branding of of, of the region. And like, who doesn't want to drink the stars? I mean, just as a, as a side note, like it's it's a it's what they do. They're really good at it. You know, it, it, there's a reason they have this this reputation. Um, I want to go back though. The bottles exploding was a real issue. Um, and I'm going to hit the, actually, you know what? I'm going to let you hit the monks a little because I just, one, I can't pronounce the word. And, and two, I, uh, I'm, you're, I think you're better versed on it than I am. You just did. 
Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but before we do that, though, really quick, the 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 exploding thing, the the how we got around this when the when the monks figured out what they had, what they were actually doing, how he got around bottles exploding. It's just a really random geek fact is where we need that, you know, random sounder about, you know, geeky, whatever it is. <laughs> geeky science fact. Yes. Um, so uh, the British discovered that uh, coal burned hotter than wood and was better for making glass. And so uh, right around the time when, uh, we're trying to, we decide that bubbles aren't a fault and they're kind of cool. Uh, we have this, this the industrial revolution and this innovation in, in, in glass. And the French used to always make their glass, you know, over wood. The English did it over coal. They figure out it works better. We all of a sudden we have stronger glass because we're using coal. Um, so it's, you know, different things coming together, the history of the world and the history of wine in, in, intertwining. The other thing too is uh, randomly cork went away as an enclosure for some reason, you know, in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. And in the 17th century, they're like, you know what? Cork's probably a good idea. So between stronger cork um, or cork coming back, stronger glass bottles and uh, what the monks of Lemieux kind of, you know, discovered, uh, we get we, you know, we now have champagne. Exactly, yeah. So the monks of Lemieux were doing this about 150 years before Dom Perignon never said, <laughs> I'm chasing the stars. Um, and, you know, Lemieux is a small little village in, nestled in the Pyrenees in the Languedocs of southern France. Um, and when they created this ancestral method, Adam was talking about earlier, like, um, because fermentation is all temperature dependent and the yeast is all temperature dependent, when it gets too warm, and your wine develops too much alcohol or develops enough alcohol, the yeast dies. And what was happening because Champagne is so far north, it's such a cool climate. Uh, that's one reason why Pinot Noir wasn't ripening well. Um, just to put in context, Napa Valley gets around 30,000 hours of sun a year. Bordeaux is around 2,300 hours of sun a year. Champagne is like 1,500 hours of sun a year. And that you need that photosynthesis, that sunlight. And during the summertime, you know, even when it is warm, it's usually cloudy. And so the grapes were just never fully ripened. Um, and it was such a cool area we were talking about earlier, when your wine's in the cellar, you think the wine is done fermenting, but it's not, that was the ancestral method. Um, the monks of Lemieux figured this out long before Champagne and were producing on purpose sparkling wines. And because they were so close to Spain, um, they had access to cork. Uh, because it was, you know, right there. You just go over the, the Pyrenees um, and you were able to get some really good Spanish cork or Portuguese cork. And that helped them seal seal the fate of their wines and, and seal the deal. You know, um, if you want a really bad pun or reference in sealing your wine, that's how they were able to get, I'll get it out at one point when I'm trying to say, and that's how they were able to, um, you know, to, to capture these bubbles that it took Champagne another hundred in 40 years to figure out how to do it. So that that's basically, you know, champagne transition from a, a, a still wine region that's still well known and still sought after and whatnot to this, this sparkling region. And it really happens in the late 18th century. Um, you know, we, we start to get, um, well, so it's really actually, Back in the late 18th century, it's really interesting. Um, champagne until 1728 could only be traded in barrel, which is just really crazy to me. Um, like, if you, like you, you had to, yeah, you, you could not like trade with like other places throughout like Europe in bottle. You had to do it in barrel. So in 1728, they're like, you know what? No, you guys can start bottling it and selling it that way, which really expands champagne's influence because now you're getting that bubbly style that's new and, and unique and be, becoming perfected throughout Europe. So you're, now they're making a name for themselves. And about 50 years later, um, actually not even 50 years later, um, you have a couple of stuff before that. Um, but in general, this is now when the champagne houses 
begin to to come out. You know, I, I said 50 years because there's a, there's a bunch that happen after, but uh, the oldest one I believe is uh, Runat, which actually opens in, in 1729. And that's when the houses come and the influence of champagne really starts to expand when, they, when they're allowed to start trading in bottle because of all these technological advances that we were just talking about. Um, and, it, and this is when, you know, we have the AOC system in France, Appalachian origin control. Hey, we've talked about this. Um, and it came from the, that fun cheese story Manny told with Chateauneuf, but before we had AOCs, you had people ripping off champagne like they were ripping off Chateauneuf the pop. Um, copycats were everywhere. Uh, and it's, I'm gonna fast forward hundred years to, to 1887. This is where the, 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 the Court of Angers uh, rules that champagne, that name can only be attached to the wines coming from the actual Champagne region of France. So the, the like pre-AOC, Champagne was the first kind of default AOC because there was, there, there was such copycat, people wanted to mimic it so much. Again, it, it was a brand back then. It was, a, it, it, was a, it was an icon back then. Just really interesting history with Champagne. I could, yeah, I could go off on tangents all day. <laughs> <laughs> then, I'll, then I'll stop. You know, that's absolutely true. Like, uh, because it was also associated with, with these celebrations, I think there, there's just a nostalgic sense to Champagne. I mean, you think of the Roaring Twenties. Champagne was, you know, was that drink. It was highly sought after. Um, accidentally which i think is one of the best stories you know so you have this cool northern climate where the red grapes don't ripen fully we're mostly red grapes and most champagnes um and they figure out how to press it the right way they figure out how to to um capture the bubbles safely so they're not exploding with the glass and with the cork closures um and then there's the soils which help dictate the the house style and what we mean by house style is that most champagnes we get are not a single vintage like you go out and you buy a bottle of, you know, Sonoma Catray or Chardonnay or Kim Crawford Blanc or, you know, Jadot Beaujolais Village, it has the vintage on it. Here, for 90% of, of champagnes, or 90, probably 5% of champagnes, um, I don't know the math, so don't quote me, but a rough, roughly around there, um, what we're doing is blending different years together. You know, so to kind of recap how Adam had, had explained the system the other day, you basically make a still wine. And what they do is they take different parcels, different um, vineyards, different villages in the region and different grapes and they isolate them all. So they, they vinify them, they make the base wines all separate. And then they blend them together utilizing older vintages because that older vintage is going to help create the house style because now this vintage and the last vintage are gonna, we're gonna use those the next two or three years. And so we're always gonna have a very similar take in, in what the wines taste like. So when you go out and you buy a bottle of Tattinger, you buy a bottle of, of Piper Heidsick, Charles Heidsick, non-vintage, you know every single year what that wine is gonna taste like, um, you know, which is, which is incredible. And because there are you know, four main subregions in Champagne and they all break up into four to six to 13 little sub-sub-sub-sub-regions, uh, they are all getting their grapes typically from specific areas. Um, and all these areas have their microclimate and they all have their soils. And the soils in Champagne, um, in particular in places like, like Rams where Tattinger, where, where Piper come from, um, you have these crazy chalky soils. And if you were to dig in these vineyards, you would pull up fossils of sea creatures, um, which is also why champagne works, you know, so well with with oysters. Did I get that right? Oysters? It was close. Was close. close. How was you're, you're still saying Chardonnay wrong, but oysters was close. I'll take it. <laughs> I try. I'll get there. I'll get there, you know, soon enough. Yeah, but that that like once again that goes to our house styles. And so like today I'm drinking Tottenjay, which is, you know, I know Adam's Champagne House is older, but um, the real backstory of Tattinger dates back to 1734. There was this guy, uh, Jacques Fournier, who um, had a Champagne House called Forest Fournier, 
Um, he worked with Benedictine, Benedictine monks in the area. Um, and that was the original kind of Tattinger house, Tattinger house. But it really didn't become Tattinger until the 1930s. There was a guy by the name of Pierre Tattinger who uh, was sitting in this um, beautiful chateau called Macatry in the Cote Blanc, which is an area that is almost exclusively Chardonnay um, and produces some of the most beautiful, beautiful wines in the world based on Chard. Um, he was uh, in the First World War. He was a sergeant, I believe, and he was sitting on the steps of this um, this chateau that at the time was used as an office for for the uh, the French army um, during WW1, the Great War. And he was sitting there and he was thinking to himself, if I ever get out of this war, I'm going to buy this and I'm going to make champagne. Thereabouts, that was the story. And in 32, he finally bought that, um, he bought that building, he bought the company, and that's where Tatanjay comes from. Fun fact on Tatanjay. So beneath the ground in Champagne, which I talked about the chalky soils, they have something called Creer, which are these giant caves um, carved out of chalk that the Romans dug out 2,000 years ago. And they are one of five producers in the city of Rams, the historic home of Champagne, where they actually cellar and age their wines in this, um, in these clairs, in this, these caves. And they're huge. They're huge, beautiful, awesome caves. Um, and, you know, for me, that talking about how style, the style of Tatanjay is, they hold more Chardonnay, like they have holdings and vineyards of more Chardonnay than any other Champagne house. Um, I think they have the majority of, of Chardonnay within the region as a specific, as an individual grower. And um, their wines are typically Chardonnay dominant. So there's more of a focus on that, which gives it more of a light kind of linear, citric, minerally feel to it. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, I, I love Tattinger. I don't have one today, but I, I have high up Piper Isaac Rosé. But, but before I get into this, I think we should, and we weren't going to do it, but I think we should uh, dive a little more into the process of how champagne is made, just because it really speaks to why the houses have styles. And we can tie it back to climate too, which I think is really important. I mean, you had mentioned just previous to how everything is picked and vinified separately, and then all this kind of cool blending happens, and it's non-vintage usually. And, and that's the first process for the base wine. Uh, nothing is bubbling yet. Now, th th there's no spackle yet. And the reason they do this is because the climate is so cold, vintage variation is dramatic. And you wanna be able to produce something every year of consistent quality. Uh, that, that people will know. So when you blend those different plots and those different vintages and whatnot, you kind of get that consistency. But where do the bubbles come from? So the 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 bubbles, well, quick before, the, before I get to the bubbles, um, if you want to make rosé before you add the bubbles at the end, this is when you add the, you can either do Sanye method where you're, you, you bleed some off, we talked about rosé, or you can add some red wine, red still wine into your, into your white. You have to do it before you add the bubbles. Legally, that's when you have to do it. So um, so now you're gonna add your bubbles. Well, they, they add, everything now gets bottled into individual bottles and you add some more fruit juice basically with some yeast and you cap it with a bottle cap. And when you do that, you allow the temperature to rise again and another fermentation happens and you're capturing carbon dioxide. So if you watched my, uh, my video last week on Instagram, you learned that the you know, sugar and yeast combining equals carbon dioxide and alcohol. Well, so we're capturing the carbon dioxide out with that bottle cap. So it stays in the bottle. So it naturally is, is, is sparkling now with that natural CO2. Um, for non-vintage champagne, this needs to stay on the lees, so the dead yeast cells from that secondary fermentation um, for at least 12 months. It normally goes longer, but it's at least 12 months. Uh, and then legally, it has to age for 15 months. Uh, sometimes we say 18, just because it's no one really does 15, but technically it's really, it's 15 by law. Um, but it's usually much longer for non-vintage champagne. 
before it gets released and, and before it can get released to you, you have all these dead yeast cells in the, in the bottle. You have to get them out somehow to, unless you're going to have a kind of cloudy ancestral method wine. Um, so what they do, they, uh, they take it, the caps on it and they, they do what's called riddling. So now it's done by a machine for the most part, but there used to be these kind of A-frame racks that had holes in them and you would stick the champagne bottle in and you would let the yeast cells kind of uh, over time sink into the neck and then you would slightly turn it over the, over the course of many months till all that yeast, all the yeast got concentrated in the neck. You would then freeze the neck um, and take the cap off, shoot the, the, that frozen part out so that you know you've filtered in air quotes the the wine now you have a little bit of space left in the bottle which where you add your dosage if you add one if not it's called brut nature we'll have a little video on instagram later that explains all the different uh sweet classifications and dry classifications because if we translate them none of them make any sense because they all actually translate to dry <laughs> but um and, and that's how like that's also how you create your house style is that that last part, it's called the dosage. So you have your base wine, you've added your bubbles, and now you're adding the dosage, which is the, the, the amount of sweetness or dryness you want to have to the wine afterwards so that you have that consistency year after year after year. Uh, I hope you're all still awake because <laughs> that was a lot of science. I am. Uh, I don't know if, you, if you're watching the video. Well, you are, but you left. That's why. Oh. <laughs> you know, like if you're watching the video, Manny left. Oh, that's why he's still awake. I, I bored would, him so much. He got up and he walked. I would go do some push-ups. Uh, <laughs> came back. No, um, wait, I mean, just think about it too. Like it was such a time timely process. Like the the riddling itself. Like there was basically some guy. His job is to, if you're watching the video part, goes in. I know this looks like I might be, you know, doing something wrong, but goes in and grabs, like, uh, turns each bottle a quarter. This is all they do. All I mean, you might have a thousand bottles. This is like what they do all day long. Um, I mean, talk about carpal tunnel. But I know that he probably had an assistant. That was probably 50 and this guy was like 90 and this was his job for his entire life and that 50 year old was waiting for that 90 year old to die just so he can go and turn those bottles you know that's how ridiculous the french it's, are it, it's insane i mean the the pro they have the process down i mean it's you, know, you were talking about bread the other week and it's the process right like the the champagne process is real like they, i mean it's they just got it down. Um, I mean, it's it's all these all these things through history and the climate and mistakes, and I think we don't recognize that oftentimes our best work is done when we screw up. You know, the mistakes and and realizing, and that's science. Sometimes it's like you do an experiment, you get it wrong, but you see something that was right, and you kind of start adjusting that and tweaking that. And they they were, I don't, I it's still to this day, there's just nobody better at it than for making sparkling wine. I know someone maybe from French Corta might, you know, be upset about that, or someone from, you know, Carneros might be upset about that. But there's, there's just nothing. There's no substitute for great champagne. And, and it's the, this also too that the process, that aging requirement, speaks to one again. The, it ties back to the climate. So why do you have to age 15 months before you release? That doesn't make any sense. Like what? What? Where does that come from? It's so. Oh God, I'm going to geek out again here. Okay, so um, as, the, as a grape ripens, um, acid levels come down and sugar levels come up, right? And ideally, you're picking at a point where the acid and the sugar are in perfect harmony and you have this beautifully balanced wine is what we all want, sure. Well, champagne's really freaking cold. So you're always going to have high, high acid wines. Now, technically... Acidity does not decrease over time, but the longer that you have those the um, the champagne aging in the bottle with the yeast cells on the lees with the with the dosage balancing, the longer you do all these things, um, the better you balance that screaming acidity. So it all ties together. The, it's not a random aging requirement. It's because they're trying to balance out that acidity with the flavor profiles that they have. And I've just like I feel like I've I put off delay talking about the beautiful wine that I'm drinking for too long now. So <laughs> let's uh, hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> you know, uh, with all the science. So yeah, I am I am drinking Piper Heidzik, uh Rose Sauvage. Can you pull, so, pull the bottle up a little bit? Oh sure, Rose Sauvage. Um, so Sauvage translates uh, as wild. Uh, 
which uh, I love uh, because I think that this rosé uh, is wild. Um, they're doing, so Piper is a house. Uh, it, it, Piper is one of the historic houses. Um, founded originally in 1785 uh, by Florence Louise Heisdick. Heisdick uh, just had this vision of um, making champagne that was worthy of royals. And, and, you know, he went to, he went straight to Marie Antoinette, which, you know, things didn't end well for her, but she drank well before it did. Uh, and she was, she loved Piper so much that like, she was the first unofficial brand ambassador for, for Piper. Um, in a few years later, fast forward, uh, Henri Guillaume Piper comes and joins the, the venture and has these grand ideas of we can take the champagne all over the place. And that's when Piper Hearts really becomes Piper Hearts. Like, um, really expands. And, you know, Manny was talking about how there's more Chardonnay in the, in, in, in the Tétanger. Uh, that wasn't a bad, that, that French wasn't bad. That was pretty good. That was, that was, that, I, I would, I'd say you nailed it. Wow. Uh, that's never going to happen again. So, like, just, just keep that. Hold that close to your heart. It's not going <laughs> to happen again. Uh, so, but Piper normally is going to be, is well over, is at least 50% red grapes. Uh, and normally well over that. We're, we're normally looking 80. So, Pinot Noir is normally 50 points in their in their cuvee um and they tend to, to me as a house style they're a much more fruit forward style um the in their in their brut they're extra dry lots of fruit up front you do get those kind of um you know yeasty toasty tones they'll be there because it's champagne it's like it's least contact but it's that that's not the focus you're getting some of those those primary fruit aromas and which leads me to the the, the rosé i'm drinking um this is about so they they add vinified red wine that's, that's how they make their rosé and they, they make a still red pinot noir and that's where the color is coming in this this is a deeper color than most of your your um your champagnes i don't know how how well it's coming across but this is this is a slightly deeper pink then you know, then like a Provence rosé or some 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 others that we see, um, and as a result, I mean we're we're about 50, 50 to fifty five percent Pinot Noir, thirty percent Pinot Meunier, and of that ten you know ten percent of the total cuvee is that red wine, and you get these lovely red fruit tones uh, on this wine, very fruit forward, very bright, very fresh. Um, and champagne doesn't always tend to be as fresh as some other sparkling wines, especially tank method. But I find Piper gets a lot of those really fresh, bright fruit tones, and I'm really getting that in, in, in the champagne. Um, and yeah, I, I think you find those, those fresher notes, the, the, those brighter fruit tones throughout all their, their various uh, items. And, that, and that's why I think that Piper's popular, is they, they have that fruitiness that, that people really like. Uh, I love drinking brioche, but not everyone does. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing uh, I want to point out too, for those of you that are listening and not watching, you know, you'll notice that, or you won't notice if you're not watching, but if, if you're watching, you'll notice, and if you're listening, you'll hear that we are not drinking out of champagne flutes. We are not drinking out of the, speaking of Marie Antoinette, the famous Marie Antoinette flute, we are drinking out of white wine, red, well, wine glasses mine's a white wine glass um and there's a reason why and it's because those flutes look great but you just don't get the aromas because champagnes are really expressive there's so much going on in them they're uber complex um fun fact there are roughly about a million bubbles in your bottle um or in the glass rather which is really cool i mean i didn't count them i saw that line so i might be wrong but i'm gonna go with it because it makes sense um i but, expect you to pull a sesame street later and count every bubble at the count one <laughs> two three four um you know and one other thing with champagne for me is that you know we think about kind of the celebrating moment it's midnight it's new year's which by the way i've opened champagne at midnight in new year's i'm already typically drunk at that point so <laughs> I don't open anything nice anymore. Um, and oftentimes I open Prosecco or Cava um, on New Year's Eve. 
you know, I'll start with champagne and we'll, we'll, we'll finish with kava because I'm not going to drink that glass at that point. Uh, but champagne is great with food because we're in this cool region. It's higher acid. And actually think for a second, you know, when we think about food wine pairings and you think about big, rich dishes, oftentimes we think about big, rich, heavy wines. Well, in this area, it's cold. They do a lot of braises. And when you braise something, the meat that's in that braise just goes into the liquid, which you reduce down to make a sauce out of. So now you're drinking the fat of that protein and that is intense and the acid in champagne just cleans your palate um, it's great with oysters uh, you mentioned gummy bears champagne and burgers are awesome um, uh, I mean typically they do like trotters which like deep fried pig trotter um, in champagne and sausage that's like super greasy um, it works so well with champagne and vice versa the, the acid and the bubbles are the great equalizer. I mean, they really are. It just it, it goes, um, it, it just it, it goes so well. I mean, champagne. I mean, we joke, you know, with, with, with bubbles with brunch, but or bubbles with breakfast. But I, it, there's a reason that stereotype came about because it actually works. Yeah. You know, um, you know, uh, Marilyn Monroe is quoted as waking up with a glass because uh, I'm drinking Viper. Marilyn Monroe is, it, you know, is quoted as. I, I go to bed with a couple of drops of Chanel number no. five and I wake up with a glass of Piper Heidsick. Like it's the champagne goes with breakfast. Like it just, it, it does it, with, a, with a wide variety of things. Um, the, the bubbles really, you know, if, if again, the, the acid cuts through fat, the bubbles will get, um, if you're having something spicy or really salty or whatnot, the bubbles will kind of rinse your mouth and, and, and take that, that, that spiciness, that salt out of your mouth. Um, it, it's, it just, it, it's so diverse. And I, I love the champagne is for celebrations. I do. I think it's great. Um, you know, and, and I used to jokingly say, I, I like celebrating Tuesday, <laughs> but, but, you know, but, but I can say that, I, you know, it, that's a really privileged thing to say, uh, not to get too on that, on that note, but you know, champagne's not cheap. We all can't, afford to celebrate Tuesday. I, you know, we work in a business where, you know, we, we can find a bottle of champagne and do that. But, but still like the, I want to make a correlation. There's always an excuse to wait to drink your bottle of champagne, right? Oh, you know, I'm waiting for my, I'm waiting for that first child. I'm waiting for graduation. I'm waiting for my wedding. I'm waiting for, you know, name the thing that you're waiting for to, to happen. And, I think you should drink champagne in all in all those scenarios. Don't get me wrong; it's a, it's it's great for those, but uh, it's not only for those things either. Um, you know, it's the we, we can't take wine with us. You know, it, it's it's it, we should enjoy it while we have it. So it, if if you feel the urge to open a bottle of champagne on a random Wednesday night because you just feel like drinking champagne, that's it's not only okay. I encourage it. Well, <laughs> opening champagne on Wednesday can make for a better hump day. I will say that. Absolutely. And champagne pairs with Billie Holiday, you know. You know, it also pairs well, actually with, with Charles Heitzig, Ella Fitzgerald, because that's really brioche and she's got such a big, beautiful, awesome, powerful voice, you know. You've got me, go on, continue. You're going somewhere with this, I love it. <laughs> well, so um, next, Thursday night, um, I will be working with a really good friend of mine, Ruby Rose Fox, uh, with four other amazing musicians, um, independent artists throughout the country. And um, I've known Ruby for years. I met her here in Boston. She's based out of Chicago now. We're doing an event with the Museum of Science where I am pairing specific wine regions and uh, wines with each performer. And so they've created these beautiful videos of them performing. Ruby and I are gonna go back and forth, talk about uh, kind of more of a holistic um, approach to pairing. And uh, you know, the, the kind of, we're calling it uh, Venestigia, mindfulness in the glass. And it's really kind of paying attention to what's in that glass and how it relates to what it is we're listening to. And, um, you know, how does the wine enhance the music? How does the music enhance the wine? And just to kind of put in some perspective we've all been in, you've been in that busy restaurant, you open that, you, you know, it's super crowded, you get a nice bottle of wine, but it's so loud, the music is, 
makes no sense. It's too pump, you know, pumped, um, too energetic, maybe atonal because the bartender needs something to get them through the night, but it's not always pleasant for the customer or the guest sitting down, someone bumps into your table. You're not going to enjoy that bottle of champagne as much. You might enjoy a beer in that moment, but you're not going to enjoy a bottle of, of champagne. And so the music and the atmosphere really create, um, I think the structure us to really, the structure to either really dive into the wine or to appreciate it or appreciate the music on a different level. So you can go to mos.org. Uh, you look up under um, adult, um, I almost said adult entertainment, but that's a different uh, <laughs> website. Uh, it's, it's their adult events. Um, and then you can find it there. It is free. You just have to register for it. And we have some awesome wines paired with that. That's that, that's awesome. I mean, we, we said it before in previous uh, iterations of this. Wine and food too, but it, wine really is it, it's an emotional experience, uh, and it, it is tied to to the surroundings and, and what's going on in, in so many ways. And it's it's cool. It's it's I love the idea. Uh, this is why I say that I'm the lesser half of the bottom of the bottle podcast because I would not have come up with that, and then he did. Uh, but it's just, it's, oh, stop shaking your head. It's okay. I can say nice things about you. We're friends. Um, but it, it's, yeah, it's, it's just really cool. Um, it, it's a cool concept. And, you know, if the, at the beginning, you know, that, that Billy holiday thing, you know, it's for me, well, I got it right after he said it. And I, I frown upon the, Oh, you're not really tasting it. Someone suggested it, and so now you're thinking that it's there. That, that, that's complete nonsense. Um, if we're if we're drinking a light Pinot Grigio, and you know Manny and I sit there and go, you know Manny, you know what I'm getting? I'm getting uh, I'm getting caramel raspberries. Manny's not going to taste caramel raspberries. Like the, the power of suggestion is not so great that I can say something that, you know, that, that, that's probably not there and get him to think it. It's going to be real. There's going to be like the power of suggestion works when there's a tone or a note or a hint of that there. I can't just make something up and put it in your head and make you think it. You know, that was a movie called Inception and it was really hard to do. They had to go to four levels of the dream state and all that. It's, it's, it's not easy or to do. Or Jim Jones and the uh... yeah, <laughs> it's 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 just not easy to do. So um, so it, it it's there. It makes sense. Um, you're you're not losing your mind. It is an emotional experience. It's really cool. It's a great idea, Manny. It, it's awesome that you're doing it. It's going to be yeah. awesome. It's fun um, to sports musicians, you know. Um, I mean, but just to jump back on on champagne on the champagne train, you know, we're talking about this history of of champagne being really one of the first unofficial AOCs in France. Um, what I like about it, and there's like the entomology is sometimes interesting, you know, where these words come from. And champagne is a region, but it is a Latin word that is actually uh, comes from the word campagna, which means unforested, fertile land. Um, and that reminds me of one of my favorite wine regions in Italy. And I kind of feel like we should leave France for a little bit um, and make the Italians happy. <laughs> I'm okay with this. Nano is from Campania, so I'm totally okay with this. This, this makes perfect sense. Um, I am sad that we're skipping Alsace in Sunset. That's okay, they'll still be there. We can come back to it. <laughs> you know, it's, oh, I mean, I can, I'll just drink them in the meantime. That's okay too. Um, well. But yeah, I mean, Campania makes, you know, gorgeous wine. I think it's, it's why not? If we're going to start somewhere in Italy, let's just completely, you know, let, let's not be, you know, cliche and start with Tuscany or Barolo. Let's, let's go to Campania. I think that's, you know, I happen to know someone who comes from that region um, who I'd mentioned before makes pizzas. Maybe we can, maybe we can get him on this if he's not too busy. And I would just want to say once again, I'm not saying because he makes pizzas because he's Italian. It's not a generalization. Um, he actually puts pizzas on his Instagram all the time. He calls himself a, a peasant cook. Um, and uh, maybe we can get him to, to join us. 
Uh, would we get a word in edgewise if that happened? I don't know. <laughs> I think we can figure it out. Awesome. Sense to me. Yeah. You know, I, I have um I have to get to the bottom of this bottle now, so I think we should stop talking so that I can start drinking. I think that's a good idea. Pour myself a little more. It's a great way to start the weekend. After a very long, very long hump day. Uh Cheers, everyone. Thanks for checking us out at the bottom of the bottle. Check us out on uh, Spotify. Obviously, if you're listening to us, you know where to find us. Um, Instagram, bottom of the bottle 750. Get it right this time, Manny. Come on. So we've only changed the name a thousand times, but I think we're stuck with this one now. Um, but until next time, let's lead out with some Billy Holiday. Cheers, everyone. So are you... Are you excited for the Bruins playoff run coming up? Uh, is that, is that um, hockey ball? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You know, it's that, it's that Saturday. You know, it's, uh, it's very important. I, I, know, I know, I'm always really curious where that little cupcake they're, they're, they're hitting with the sticks. Like, why don't they pick that up anymore? Now you got little brown eyes if you want. They sparkle, they bubble, get you in a lot of trouble. Ah, oh, baby, damn, damn. Get you in a